Hi everybody and welcome. We're glad you could join us today. Today we'll be talking about the use of probability-based bridge assessment as a viable option for bridge assessment beyond the AS5100 deterministic methodology. My name's Elena Gardner and I'm the Communications Manager at Austroads. I'll be moderating today's session. If you run into any technical problems, please let me know in the questions section of your sidebar. You'll find that on the right-hand side of your screen. But just a quick tip, if, you, if your picture freezes or you lose sound, that is most likely an issue with your connection and closing your browser and rejoining the session via your email registration usually fixes that problem. I acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we're broadcasting today. I pay my respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitangi and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. So a little bit of housekeeping. Our presenters are going to speak for about 40 minutes today and then we'll have a Q&A session that will run for 15 minutes. We do record all of our webinars and we'll email you once the recording is uploaded on our website. We also distribute our webinars via podcast and you can subscribe to our channel by searching for Austroads in your podcast app. Today's presentation slides can be downloaded from the handout section in your sidebar along with the report. So a little bit about Austroads. We're the peak organisation of Australasian transport and traffic agencies and our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. Austroads uses a program management approach to deliver its work and each program is focused on an operational area of the road system. The project we're discussing today was delivered under the Assets Program, which is managed by Ross Guppy and coordinated by Eliz Esteban. So as I just mentioned, the report uh, this webinar is based on is available through the handout section in your sidebar or it can be downloaded from our website. So please do send us any questions you have for the Q&A. Simply type your questions into the question box at any stage of the webinar. It does really help us to answer your questions if you can let us know the slide number your question relates to. And it can be helpful to have a PDF of the slides available to refer back to the slide number. And just a reminder, you can download them in the sidebar in the document section. That gives me great pleasure to introduce our presenters today, Dr. Colin Kriprani, Professor Mark Stewart and Dr. Maya Mellon. Colin is our first presenter and he will give an overview of the project. Colin has considerable industrial and academic experience specialising in the safety assessment and performance monitoring of bridges. He has received numerous awards and attracted significant research funding for a wide range of projects related to structural safety and bridge engineering. We'll then hear from Professor Mark Stewart, who will walk us through the structural reliability theory. Mark has more than 30 years experience in risk and safety assessment of infrastructure systems. He has attracted more than $10 million in, funding, in research funding, authored five books and published hundreds of technical papers and reports. Our third expert today is Dr. Maya Mellum. Maya is the lead author of the report and he'll be talking about the assessment framework and its application. Maya is a structural engineer, who has worked on multiple bridge management and assessment projects with a focus on improving the process by adopting structural reliability methods. During the Q&A, we'll also have Andy Ning, Austroads project manager, join us. Andy's expertise is in the area of structural maintenance and operational access. So welcome to you all. And I'm going to hand over now controls to Colin. 
Hello, everybody. Great to be with you today. I will talk about the uh, overview of the project that, that we have delivered. And it was delivered with the project team that you see here. Andy Ng was the project manager. Um, I led it with Mark and Meyer, and I had some uh, great assistance from uh, Dr. Ella Zhang as well, who I'd like to acknowledge. We were fortunate in this project to have an excellent working group from Ostroads, as well as an international advisory committee, which fed uh, the reviews of the project work into the task force, uh, which then uh, subsequently had approval from the Ostroads board. So our international advisory committee uh, was um, made up with uh, Professor Jose Campos y Matos, who uh, was the lead on a project called TU1402, which is the latest quality specifications for road bridges in Europe. We were also very pleased to have Professor Alan O'Connor, uh, who has a significant experience with uh, practical experience, uh, bridge assessment problems in, in Denmark in particular. And so again, he provided very, very good feedback uh, on the project uh, as it evolved. The Australia's working group throughout made sure that uh, us academics were kept in the practical realm. Uh, so Julie, Alex, Vincent and Suki gave really good feedback uh, along the way as well. So the aim of the project was to uh, go beyond AS5100 part seven to provide a higher tier assessment framework using the latest tenets of reliability and safety engineering uh, to provide this uh, higher tier. Having developed the framework, we wanted to show how it could be used. So we did this through two steps. Our first step was to determine the safety level of as-built bridges uh, under their design load. So this is the code implied safety of bridges uh, built from the 60s and 70s and so on. In our second step, we wanted to determine the actual levels of safety that are out there on our network at present, because this of course is different given the increasing volumes and weights of traffic. And so we'll see those results later on. The purpose of the project is to provide this higher tier assessment. So we're, we're measuring safety using a, a different approach. On the x-axis on this plot is the uh, traditional rating factor approach that you're probably familiar with, where uh, the number one is the delineation between safe and unsafe. Our approach, our probabilistic approach, uh, uses a different measure of safety called a reliability index. And this is what's shown on the y-axis. The delineation between safe and unsafe is given by something called beta t here, the target reliability index. And so if both measures of safety agree that something is unsafe, we're in the red box. If both measures of safety agree that something is safe, we're in the green box. But if they disagree. If one measure is saying something is safe while another measure is saying it's unsafe, we'll be in these yellow boxes. Now we expect to see that the reliability index measure of safety should reveal uh, margins of safety that the rating factor approach can't reveal uh, due to its inherent and reasonable conservatism. So those points will be realizations from our assessment approaches. And it's that gap uh, in, that's indicated there that is the benefit of probability-based bridge assessment. 
So why or when would you do probability-based bridge assessment? Well, it's not intended to replace traditional bridge assessment methods. Um, typically, the situation is on the left, where we uh, go about a rating factor approach, and if it passes, we're, we're happy. If it doesn't pass, we would uh, implement a strengthening project. Under this revised framework, uh, we would still implement a traditional assessment, and if it passed a traditional assessment, that's fine. If it didn't pass the traditional assessment, we'd ask ourselves the question, um, is, it, is it close enough that a more refined, higher tier assessment would be of value? And if the decision there is no, it would not be of value to, to spend additional um, money on a higher tier assessment, we'll then go ahead and implement a traditional strengthening project. But if it is sufficiently uh, of value to conduct this higher tier assessment, we might find it passes this higher tier assessment, which is great news. Uh, but even if it doesn't pass at that point, um, we uh, can still implement a refined strengthening project based on new information that emerges from the PBBA process. So PBBA is not a, a new thing, really. It's, it's involved uh, in, in guidelines in multiple other countries. And a way to think of it is that it's the, the, the writing of a code of practice for a specific bridge or even a specific component in the bridge, because it's using the very same approach that's used to write a code of practice in the first place. So I'll hand over to Mark Stewart now. Well, thanks, Colin. Uh, next slide. I, yeah, so yeah, if, if, if you have any um, questions, then please click on the sidebar and type them in. Thanks. Okay, well, a key concept that we need to understand is that zero risk really doesn't exist. And the reason it doesn't exist is there's a lot of uncertainty and variability in really every aspect of engineering, both in design and, and in assessment. And so one source of uncertainty is really what are, what are the material properties? Like what is the strength of concrete at the cross section that we're going to be interested in? And that could vary by plus or minus 10, 15%. If we've done some sort of inspection or some sort of assessment, it might get down to plus or, minus, plus or minus 5%. And the same goes for dimensions, exactly where the reinforcing or pre-stressing strands are. We don't know that with 100% with certainty. Probably a larger source of uncertainty is really what are the permanent and imposed loads and how they vary with time. And so when we try to predict what could be the peak load on a bridge in one year, that could be accurate around plus or minus 30, 40%. Right. And then the other source of uncertainty really becomes in the fact that any predicted model we use is not going to be perfect. And so we need to try to characterize what the accuracy of these models are. And we tend, we tend to find that as a model error. So one way we can capture some of this variability uncertainty is through structural reliability theory. This theory has been around for at least 50, 60 years. It's been very well established. And the key thing is, is it allows us to estimate the probability of failure. So it's a, it's, it's a very accurate measure of safety. And it's much more meaningful than just the facts of safety. So if, if you look on, on, the, on the figure on the right, figure 2.2, we can start to see what causes failure. So we have some uncertainty and variability about, about our capacity, for example. 
we probably have more uncertainty about what the load effect might be in one year or five years or 20 years or more. And failure will occur if our load effects exceeds our, our capacity. And when, and when the upper and lower tail of those two curves overlap, that gives us an indication of failure and is methods to calculate what will be the probability of failure. And so define failure is defined by the limit state function. You know, in that case, R minus S. And the probability of failure is, is, is obviously when the resistance is less than a load. Now we tend to get fairly small probabilities of failure, 10 minus 5, 10 minus 6, 10 minus 7. So you can get you can get a bit messy talking about such such small numbers. So we tend to use a normalized index called, called the reliability index. Now it's pretty hard to get your head around about, about what that actually means, but the simplest way to say it is it's the number of standard deviations, the mean of the limit state is from failure. So the larger is beta, the smaller is the probability of failure. And if you look at the figure on the lower right-hand side, in most cases we're concerned with the beta maybe four, maybe five. So that relates to a probability of failure about 10 to the minus five to 10 to the minus six. You know, so we're talking about very small events and very small probabilities. Uh, next slide, thanks. So in a sense, a structural reliability is a robust measure of safety and it's very widely used. Right? And one indicator of its wide use is the fact we have it, we have an Australian standard on the principles of reliability of 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 um, structures and the first code of this came out in 2005 so it's been around for, for at least 15 years now and probably it's been used in many many advances in structural and, and safety engineering probably the most obvious one to many of us is is how we use our design standards we move from working stress design which used a factor of safety to the limit state format in the mid to late 80s in Australia and, and elsewhere around the world. And the limit state design we use today is all based upon the principles of maintaining a consistent probability of failure. And so this has been used for the codes all around the world. It's been used for design of, of, of new bridges in Canada, Denmark, Italy, and so on. It's particularly useful, as we see in this presentation today, the safety assessment of existing structures, and it can also be used to optimize the maintenance and, and assessment of structures as well. In Australia, probably the most recent applications we've had that you probably recognize is how we've changed some of the capacity reduction factors in the concrete code and the, and the masonry structures code. And these are all based upon the principles no, in, in this AES 5104. Quite recently, myself and, and Steve Foster from the University of New South Wales revisited the capacity reduction factors for the concrete structures code because uh, they were implement, they were derived in the mid 80s and a lot has happened since then in terms of the quality of our materials and the quality of our construction. And by using the principles of structural reliability in conformance with 5104, we're able to find that we could actually increase the capacity reduction factors for compression, shear, and flexure by about 0.05. Um, a bit longer ago, I also looked at the Masonry Structures Code, 
Um, and we're able to increase the factor factor for compression from 0.45 to 0.75. So these are quite significant changes or increases in the design capacity of, of new structures based upon the applications of structural reliability. Uh, next slide. So once we've calculated what the probability of failure is, then the next question is, well, really, you know, how safe is safe enough? What is an acceptable risk? And, and as Colin mentioned, this is really defined as the target reliability index. And what we did is we used Australian and, and, and international guidance. And the, table, and the table shown is a table from the Australian Standard 5104. And so, which is very similar to what we see in the ISO standards and other best practice standards around the world. So you see that there's a large range of numbers there and the target reliability is based upon a trade-off between the consequences of failure and how much you, you want to invest in safety. So these, these numbers really come about from a fairly detailed cost-benefit analysis considering the trade-offs against safety and cost. So if you just look at, at, the, ta at the table, look at the failure consequences, if we're looking at a medium spanning bridge, then we suspect it's going to be a class three or a, a um, moderate failure consequences, where you could expect significant regional and delays uh, to, to services over several weeks, maybe months or even a year perhaps, but the expected number of fatalities will be fewer than, than 50. When we look at the relative cost of safety, then if the assessment, if, if a bridge fails assessment and you're going to replace, and, and that would require replacement of a new bridge, then the cost of safety is going to be very large. But in our case, we suspect it will be medium if the decision is to restrict vehicle loads rather than recommend full bridge replacement. So if we look at a class three consequence and a medium relative cost, we see the target beta is 4.2 which relates to probability failure of about one by 10 to the minus five. And so using that as a basis, we, we would recommend that target bridge is 4.2 for ultimate bending. If we're concerned about shear, which is which it tends to happen with a sudden, sudden collapse, then you want to design that to slightly higher level of reliability. So we'd most likely increase that to 4.4 and so the two targets we have here, uh, they're well accepted, that they're used in, in many countries around the world. But ultimately, it's really decision rests with the, the risk appetite of the asset owner. Is there the best place to, to see, to consider what other trade-offs they have in terms of safety, safety against cost. Uh, next slide. Okay, so I think I'll pass you over, over to Maya. Thank you very much, Mark, for providing us uh, the background on, on the theory. So now I'm going to go over how we applied this theory through the means of a probability-based bridge assessment framework and specifically look at the parameters that we require and then also show you some of the results for a set of uh, Australian bridges. Uh, so figure 3.1 in the report presents our recommended flow chart for a probability-based bridge assessment in the Australian and New Zealand context. Now, really, it's an adaptation adaptation to the well-established international probability-based bridge assessments from other international codes, such as the Danish Road uh, Directorate, published in 2004. For those familiar with uh, AS100 Part 7, you should recognise the grey boxes there. 
um, which is our deterministic rating factor approach. The blue then is just an extension of this flowchart, but now we are considering the uncertainties from the design variables. These are our capacities or resistance, the loading and the model error, which Mark uh, pointed out earlier on. Now, as indicated by Colin, the uh, probability-based bridge assessment is only conducted if it's deemed benefit. And so this was why we have the PPPA beneficial uh, box um, on the flowchart here. If it is deemed beneficial, then we must first define a limit state function. And Mark has showed us the simple limit state function for any structure. For bridge components, we saw an appropriate uh, limit state function to begin with is the one that you see here on the, on the slide where we take the um, model error multiplied by the capacity minus the model error for loading multiplied by the summation of the following load effects. We've got the self-weight, any overlay slab, superimposed dead load, and then the live load. So we must then establish the uncertainty in these variables for our limit state function. It's also important to know the reference period that we are adopting in the analysis because um, some of these variables, particularly live load, vary with time. And so we, in the report, we recommend to use one year. So this means our uncertainties have to be of annual base. Uh, so once we have those uncertainties, we can use structural reliability methods to quantify this uh, alternative measure of safety, the reliability index or beta. And then this answers the question, how safe is the structure or how much safe? We then must compare this with the target reliability as discussed by Mark earlier on. Now, the probability-based bridge assessment is not a single approach, but it's actually a suite of approaches which increase with complexity. And this is why we actually have this feedback loop that you see in the flowchart, suggesting that you will go back if need be to produce an even higher tier assessment. So a little bit more on the key framework elements. And the first is the probability modeling. Uh, so the uncertainty in the design variables are expressed through probability distributions, or we better, call, better termed as probability models. And so these are our resistance and our load effects, R and S, which are derived variables comprising of multiple basic variables, the inputs. Now in the report, tables 4.1, 4.3, I1 and I3, all are different tables that provides us a list of reference probability models from the literature. And we have adopted some of these in our analysis. We express these uncertainties through bias factors, which is ratios between means and design values, and the coefficient of variation, which is the standard deviation divided by the mean. Um, and some of these variables can be correlated. They, they, all, they can depend on each other or they can be independent. So you see some listed here. We've got the concrete strength, the pre-stress losses, the areas of the strands, steel strength, distances, so geometric properties and material properties, even the loading, the self-weight is given there. This is just a short list of what's, what's actually in the report. Once we uh, have these input basic variables models, we then can simulate them um, to establish our, our um, derived variables, so our resistance and our loading. And this is done through statistical inference or, or model fitting. And you can see on the right there how we can visualize this simulation to then try and fit an appropriate probability model. So in our, in our report, we've actually conducted 64 different um, fittings for capacity and 384 fits for uh, live loading. Uh, and so these require us to have prediction models in, in our uh, simulation that we have for uh, to get our, our uh, realizations or our data points from the histograms. 
Uh, and so these prediction models can also have errors as indicated by uh, Mark. So we also need to know the model error of these prediction models. And here we've got two model errors shown. We have the model error for the bending model from the code. And then the loading model error is the uncertainty in the models that we use to uh, establish load effects. So our grillage models. So you can think of this as like the space gas model error, if you like. So we won't go into the details of the individual um, structural reliability methods, but consider it as the algorithm in which we calculate the reliability index. Uh, and these methods are conveniently located in a whole bunch of software which are listed in the report. Also important in a probability-based bridge assessment is to conduct sensitivity analyses. So we can test the influence of any assumptions that we've made, particularly on our probability models. So if there's a probability model that has a high influence on the beta, then we might need to do some more rigorous data collection so we are more confident with our results. And we, we actually observe this for dynamic load allowance, which you'll see in the, in the results later on. So speaking of results, let's have a look at the example application that's been presented in the report. A reminder, if you have any questions, please free to ask on the sidebar and to include the slide number the question relates to. So the framework is detailed in sections three and four of the report. And we have taken 32 different bridge components from a range of areas and different design codes and, and therefore load models, which are shown in table 3.1 of the report. We have high strength reinforced concrete use labs at five different spans, pre-stressed concrete precast planks at five spans, eye girders at six spans, T-slabs at five spans, and then super T's at 11 spans. Now it's important to note that the work here is demonstrating how we can use structural reliability theory and an example, for, a detailed example is found in section five of the report for the eye girder to T44 loading, the 19 meter uh, span there. Uh, so yeah, it's important to note that these are limited to these, this subset of results. And so we consider the components to be pristine as built. We've ignored time dependent factors like traffic growth and material degradation. These are simply supported substructures component of concrete components. And we're looking at only ultimate bending and ultimate shear. And from the cross sections you see on the right there, we are looking at two lane non-skew bridges as well. And for the loading, we've considered as shown in the limit state function, dead load, superimposed dead load, traffic loads, but including dynamic actions as well. And so these are limitations that are to the demonstration of the framework and not so much to the method itself. And so from these uh, subsets, we then apply the two results, which is step one, the code implied safety, and step two, the current safety. So let's have a look first at step one. So Appendix A, uh, sorry, Appendix E provides good details on, on this method. And we have a flow chart here summarizing how the method was done for step one. So first up, the capacity, we establish from literature review, uh, the material and geometric properties and their probability models, as we saw earlier on. We then use appropriate prediction models to predict the capacity for the two different uh, limit states. And then we can then uh, establish the uncertainty in those capacities. So for ultimate bending, we adopted clause 8.1 of AS51 5100.5, uh, the rectangular stress block. And for shear, we adopted the modified compression field theory provisions found in clause 8.2. But we have, must adapt these for assessment because those clauses are for design. And details on how we can um, adopt the modified compression field theory provisions for assessment can be found in a publication by Colin and myself uh, in the Australian Journal of Structural Engineering. And this, this article is free to download if you're a member of Engineers Australia. So for loading then, 
Um, we established the right traffic load model for design because we're looking at the code implied safety. Also establishing what is the right factors for uh, accompanying lane factors or dynamic load amplification. We then construct grillage models or other appropriate finer element models so that we can establish the load effects. So this is now our prediction model. Uh, and these are detailed in Appendix H of the report. Then we have the load effects probabilistic characterized, including the, um, those factors from the code. And we can then conduct our reliability assessment as per the limit state function. We have shown here, which we have the model errors times the resistance minus the model error times the sum of those load effects. So let's have a look at some results. For step one, here are the summary results that we have, and you can also find full details in Appendix J. So each dot represents one of the 32 bridge components with the shape shown in the legend. We have bending moment on the left and shear on the right. Now we can see from both limit states, we actually have this beneficial region, uh, dots in this region, indicating there is a reserve capacity or safety rather in these components that the rating factor otherwise would not indicate. And this, these plots also give us a sense of safety that's offered by the codes, which previously um, was not known. And compared with the recommended target of 4.2 and 4.4, we can see that our historical codes have been conservative. So for step two then, um, Appendix F provides details on this, and here's a summary flowchart as well. Uh, the method is very similar to step one, but now we must probabilistic characterize the uncertainty in the current traffic that's out there in present day. And to do that, we first process some way motion data to establish the garage of freight that we have on our roads. And uh, particularly we selected a freight network and we looked at the high mass limits and we used WIM data from the Westgate Bridge. From this data then, we artificially simulate bridge traffic on the two traffic lanes of our bridges that we've selected, uh, but considering variations that are possible in the vehicles, uh, such as their gross vehicle mass or the axle maths and so forth. Also adopting some uh, appropriate headway or vehicle spacing models. And all this is done through um, our in-house software, uh, BTLS. Now these simulations are done for different flows and you can see those in figure 3.2 or on the right on, on the slide here. And we consider both two-lane unidirectional and two-lane bidirection. So with three flows and two different um, directions, we have then six flows that we are um, testing for. And details are found in Appendix D. Then once we have simulated the traffic, we have our load events. To get our load effects, we must then use influence lines. And so we've constructed influence lines and inputted those into our software to establish the simulated load effects. These simulated load effects then give us the realizations so we can then establish the uncertainty uh, over, the, over um, the annual uncertainty, I should say, for the load effects. And so once we have the load effect, traffic load and load effect uncertainty, we can then uh, use our previous uncertainty and capacity from step one, our permanent loads from step one as well, but now we include a uncertainty in the dynamic load allowance um, using appropriate reference uh, material. And so here are the results for step two, and these are detailed in Appendix K. So each dot here represents one of the six flows for each of the 32 bridge components, and the shapes you can see are in the legend. Bending moment again on the left and shear on the right. Now here we're seeing some interesting results. For bending, we are seeing that there is, in some cases, uh, dots in this region where the rating factor says it's okay, it's safe, but the probability methods are saying that it's unsafe. 
But in fact, this is actually expected because if you notice, the x-axis is plotting the design load model and the y-axis is plotting the current traffic. And so this shift is expected because we now have greater traffic on our roads compared to when the bridge was historically designed. So that's fine. With Shia, we expect to see a similar thing. However, we don't. We actually are still seeing there is significant cost savings by having some of, of, of the bridges in, in the region where the rating factor is saying it's not safe, but then the um, probability method is saying that it's safe. And this is particularly the case for the super T girders designed to the current load model. So now I'm going to hand it over to Colin to just conclude and, and give some further recommendations. Thanks, Mark. So after all of this, uh, this work, uh, the main findings uh, of this uh, report, uh, the, the takeaway messages, are that the probability-based bridge assessment is a state-of-the-art uh, approach, which is used in elsewhere around the world. And now we have uh, provided a, a framework within which uh, Australian bridge engineers could use PBBA uh, where appropriate to conduct safety assessments on existing structures. In applying uh, the proposed methods, we considered two steps. We looked at the safety implied by historical codes. And of course, this then gives us a benchmark from which we can work. So we have this uh, quantified safety now uh, from our historical codes. In step two, though, we saw the uh, impact of existing HML traffic. Uh, on this measure of safety. What's particularly interesting is that in shear, we saw that 75% of bridges that would fail a deterministic assessment have been shown to be safe. So for these bridges, we can demonstrate that there is a margin of safety still available. And in some conversations, this has been called the plausibility gap by bridge engineers. But it's important to note that the applications of the study uh, or of the framework have some limitations. So we did not consider many possible modes of failure. Uh, we did only look at the stipulated traffic flow schemes. And of course, traffic flows vary substantially for different bridges. Uh, of course, there's a different number of traffic lanes on bridges and you know, zero skew um, is, is also a limitation. We did only look at HML, and there's many other types of uh, access routes, and we didn't uh, consider quite a few other forms of bridge load, uh, such as thermal or settlement. We used wind data from just one site, uh, and so if your particular site, your particular bridge has substantially different vehicle characteristics, uh, weigh in motion data from that site uh, would be very, very valuable. We didn't construct any substructure assessments because, of course, these are very highly site or region specific. And we only considered single components and not the entire bridge system. And an entire bridge system usually has substantial redundancy, structural redundancies in it. And so this is a conservative approach, but a limitation nonetheless. We, of course, found that there was lots of things we didn't know. Uh, and so to continue this work for Australia, uh, we need to identify many of the time-dependent factors and characterize them statistically. These would include traffic growth, modal shifts from you know, semi-trailers perhaps to B-doubles, for example, 
Uh, and this type of, of change over time needs to be understood, better understood. We also, uh, as Meyer pointed out, saw that DLA, uh, that is uh, currently uh, 0.3, um, that it has substantial influence on the measure of safety. And from previous research and other studies around the world, we know that uh, there, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty around DLA, and, and it, in, in fact, many people think it's less than 0.3 at the ultimate limit state. And so a better probabilistic uh, modeling of dynamic impact is important for improved outcomes for Australia. Finally, we have not considered uh, the use of structural health monitoring. Weigh in motion is a form of structural health monitoring. Um, we did use that data, but putting sensors on bridges and, and measuring the response under known loads would be a substantial improvement in our state of knowledge and help us reduce uncertainty uh, in some of our models that are in this uh, framework. And this is known as a value of information approach where we can um, before we go out, we can assess uh, whether or not structural health monitoring would be beneficial. So our final remarks are that rating factors uh, are no longer the final instrument to measure safety, and we suggest that this probability-based bridge assessment is a good higher-tier assessment where it's deemed beneficial. When it is done, we see that there is enormous potential benefit for its use across Australia and New Zealand. And it is common internationally, so that gives us some confidence in the approach. PBBA reveals the true levels of safety and provides quantitative data for asset management, including uh, the allowance for, for calculating dollar figures of risk, for example. And it's not particularly new in the Australian suite of standards because, as Mark has pointed out, AS5104 does allow for this higher form of assessment. And hopefully through this report, we've shown how you can use the framework of 5104 plus this report to do better assessments uh, for Australia's bridges. If you're interested in learning more about the underlying theories and so on. Uh, we've got some recommended literature in the report and also here in these slides, uh, some key textbooks, journal papers, and the relevant guidelines and standards from both Australia and further afield. Thank you very much for your attention and we'll be very, very happy to answer any questions you have at this point. That's great. Thanks so much, Colin, Meyer and Mark. A really interesting presentation. And we do have many questions, so we'll try and get through as many of those as we possibly can. Um, the first question relates to slide 19, and it's what evidence is there for capacity reduction factors to be the same for new structures um, and old structures? Uh, that's, a very good, that's a very good um, question. The, there's no evidence at the moment about that at all. The capacity reduction factors are really meant for design. Um, normally for, for assessment, the uncertainties will be quite different. In most cases for assessment, the uncertainties will be lower, so we don't need to be quite quite as, as conservative. But the question, but the issue really about this, this presentation was that we don't need capacity reduction factors in the in the risk assessment proposed in this in this presentation. Right, so the capacity reduction factors don't actually come into, into the calculations of 
structural reliability and, and the beta values. Great, thank you, Mark. Um, so the next question relates to the next slide, slide 20. And it's, how did you get from a 4.2 bending to a 4.4 shear? Oh, yeah, another good question. Yeah, there's a lot of, you, know, you, you can have a whole presentation just on this table because uh, there's, there's been so much work done into it. Basically, what the what the codes say is that, which, which is at the bottom of the slide, and, and the words here are exactly what the standard says, a structural element which we most likely to collapse suddenly without warning designed to a higher level of reliability. So that means that whatever number you get for for bending, you pick the next highest number. So the next highest number for 4.2 is 4.4. And so that's how we got that's how we got 4.4. So it just really means that we really want a bit of extra margin of safety when there's when there's no warning of imminent collapse. Um, yeah, so it's the difference between a ductile and a brittle failure, and the consequences that would emerge. Uh, you know, we get good warning from a ductile failure. And so we expect lower consequences in, in terms of maybe uh, fatalities. Uh, but for a brittle failure, uh, like we saw in the Concorde overpass in Canada, uh, you know, there's no warning, of course. And, uh, and so the consequences uh, are, are seen as, as being higher. Yeah, and another thing to note is, is that these are only suggested numbers. It's not like if it's above 4.2, it's perfectly safe. Like you need to interpret these with a bit of flexibility as well. So they're really, really for for guidance. Right. Thank you, Mark and Colin. Um, the next question relates to slide 23. Uh, and we've got a couple of questions that relate to this slide. So the first one is, um, in looking at live load uh, variability, have you also looked at variability in dynamic load impact factor? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So um, the, the histogram that you're seeing on the, on the right there, on the bottom right, uh, is the static load effects. Oh. Sorry. Oh, yep, all good. <laughs> that was me, sorry. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, bottom right is, is the static uh, load effect. And then um, when we came to step two, where we considering traffic of today, we then multiplied by a uncertain dynamic load amplification factor. Uh, and so that that you can um, you can find from the report a reference on, on where you can find, it's actually work from Colin, on the dynamic load allowance um, factor. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence internationally that dynamics reduces with increasing weight uh, of vehicles and also with multiple presence of vehicles. And so while I can go out and measure it DLA of you know even 0.8 under a light vehicle, uh, that's not what we expect to see um, when we're talking about you know a thousand-year static loading event uh, comprised of multiple heavy vehicles, all of whom are are, are not you know bouncing around. Uh, and so the evidence uh, internationally is that the dynamics at the lifetime level are are incredibly low. Um, you know only a couple of percent, uh, if even. And of course, if you think about a ductile failure mode such as bending. Uh, the significant energy absorption uh, in such a failure mode, uh, and you know, again, uh, such failure modes uh, they, they won't behave dynamically. Um, so it's 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 a bit of a balance. But uh, in in the report, we kind of outline a a reasonable approach, uh, but but it can be much much refined. Um, there's a, a paper I wrote in uh, the 
Ostrov's Bridge Conference in 2017, really, which I think uh, summarizes my um, uh, take on, on DLA. Uh, and that's freely available through, I think, AWRB's uh, library. And also on the Ostrov's website. Thank you. Okay, so we've got uh, another question uh, for this slide, which is, were the bias factors derived from measurements on Australian bridges? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. So, um, so the work from uh, Foster, which you see there, um, is the work from, from Mark and, and uh, Steve Foster from University of Sydney. Uh, and so they were looking at, um, Correct me if I'm wrong here, Mark, but uh, concrete components, not necessarily from 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 bridges, just just concrete structures. Uh, and then the other references there are international, um, and there are again structures, not necessarily bridges. Great, thanks, Maya. So we've got a couple of questions um, that I think are the same things, even though they use the same terminology. So I'm just going to use um, one of these questions, which is. Um, ASS 100.1 defines the ultimate design action for the ultimate limit state as 5% probability of being exceeded during the design life, which for a design life of 100 years represents an average return interval of 2,000 years. The question is, how does the recommended target reliability of 4.2 relate to this when all is said and done? Uh, okay, yeah, there, there is a... There is, a, there is a connection there, but um, if you just look at the characteristic value for resistance, that doesn't really take into account the loading side of the problem. So, um, so the reliability index takes into account the uncertainty of the resistance and of the loading. So, looking at looking just at, at resistance gives you a bit of a feel for the level, for for how conservative you're going to be, but you also need to factor into the uncertainty of the loading. So they're civil linked, but they're not but they're not directly correlated. Yeah, and, and while that phrase is is in the standard, um, the development of the SM sixteen hundred load model uh, did not come about from a statistical analysis. Um, it came about from considerations of, of the densities of, of economic goods that are being transported. Um, and this was done in the late 90s um, and uh, they arrived at uh, a volume that was feasible to be carried given existing road geometries and bridge heights, uh, lane widths as well. Uh, and then through the, uh, let's say, economic studies of, of freight uh, task in terms of volumetric and bulk density goods, um, they arrived at a density of uh, 0.73 tonnes per cubic metre. Uh, and so that's where the SM1600 comes from. It actually doesn't have a statistical basis, even though that statement is in the code. Great, thank you guys. Um, so the next question relates to slide 30. Okay, and uh, there's a bit of a statement, so I'll just read that out. The conservative, um, I think, estimates come from ASS 100.7, may also get back to vehicle bridge mass interaction, which cannot be assessed easily thermostatically. That is why some load factors seem to be conservatively high as ASS AS um, 100.7. What studies have been carried out in this part? How can we reliably use beta as studied? I hope that makes sense. I, I think this is about uh, dynamic load allowance again, uh, because vehicle bridge interaction is is a, 
is a problem of separating static effects from uh, what we call total, which is static plus dynamic effects. And uh, we've captured that through uh, considering the uncertainty in DLA uh, and the uncertainty in, in live load. Um, but it's, it's important to note that the, 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 these extreme 100-year um, loading events that we uh, you know, simulated were typically comprised of multiple very heavy vehicles, even though it's, it's kind of short uh, bridges because um, you know, we're looking at such a long period. Uh, and then we're using a dynamic load allowance on that that has really been statistically characterized against uh, single light vehicles. Um, so the approach is, is what we've done is, is really conservative, actually, um, and can be much refined. Uh, but even still, even we've, though we've adopted conservative approaches, we still see the benefit. Great, thank you. Uh, so I've got a question that I don't have a slide for, so I'll just sit on this one. Um, so using site-specific evaluation, reliability theory is very is a very good approach for single bridges or routes, but is very expensive to work through. How do we upscale the outcomes of this work to more general approaches? I'm not sure you want to do that, to be honest, uh, because the rating factor on deterministic uh, approach should be the bread and butter. It should be 90, 95% of all bridge assessments. And you should only ask yourself the question, uh, should I go to a higher tier assessment? Uh, when uh, perhaps you're dealing with a highly trafficked significant bridge, uh, which to reduce, uh, to impose a load limit or to take it out of service would be a significant community disruption. Um, I think that's where the higher tier assessment really adds value. Um, so I, 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 I'm, I'm a proponent of it, but when it's appropriate, not, not, not across the board. It's not a blanket approach. Um, and it's probably obvious as well that, that there's, uh, you know, very, it, it's a bit of skilled work involved, um, probably beyond um, the application of, of part seven. Uh, which is in the report. So, you know, uh, again, I don't, I don't think it's for all bridges. I think it's 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 only where appropriate. Um, hopefully that answers that question. Okay, great. Thanks, um, Colin. If I may okay. jump in as well. Um, I totally agree with Colin, but um, for bridge families where, um, where an assessment could be done across a whole bunch of bridges that are consistent, um, that's where there's some benefit as well, uh, which is actually what was done in the report, actually. Mm. Great, thanks Andy. Thanks. Um, so next question relates to slide 23. So I'll just take us back there. Uh, so the question is about WIM data. When you're using WIM data to generate uh, traffic loading, how do, you how do you separate WIM scatter from the actual loading variability? Uh, so I, I, th I think this is uh, in terms the, the WIM scatter, I, I guess, is the uncertainty in the measurements themselves because WIM is not perfect. Um, we have different classes of, 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 of WIM systems. The, the class, the, it's a class B system on the Westgate Bridge, which means that the gross vehicle weights are estimated plus or minus, uh, I think it's seven and a half percent or 10 percent, um, 95 percent of the time. And, and that's exactly what the model error um, is, is catering for. Uh, when, when we apply that, that omega um, S for our loading model error, uh, it's to capture the uncertainty in, in the, the WIM input information, as well as 
perhaps the uncertainty in, in, in the, rep the grillage representation of real structural behavior. Um, we did a sensitivity study as, uh, as well as, as indicated, so that we, we find, um, for example, it, it's, it's, in, it's in the report, but that some of these parameters are not significant and other ones are quite significant. And it turns out the DLA is actually incredibly significant uh, in this. I think the loading model error was not so significant. Not for step two. Not for step two, yeah. Okay, great, thank you. Um, we've got a question, uh, which is a general question, which is what feedback have you had from state road authorities about adopting prob the probability approach? I think Andy's probably yeah. the best place to answer that. <laughs> Sorry, I missed the question. Oh, Andy, the question is, um, what feedback have you had from state road authorities about adopting the probability approach? Um, I think there's been a, a really, um, really good feedback um, at the task force where we're very keen to explore this further um, and also expand on the um, candidate bridges that were done uh, on this round of, um, round of, of assessments and research. Um, I mean, it is, as everyone has been saying, this isn't new, like some forms of probabilistic assessment has already been done on unofficial Westgate Bridge, um, I think also on Anzac Bridge. Um, so there, there is a, a, a keen interest, I would say, um, but I think as, as uh, Colin's highlighted that there's still a number of steps um, to go and a bit more research to be done uh, on this topic. So I think that's really where it stands. And I suppose that there's a follow-on question for that and that your response might answer that, which is, does Austroads plan to produce any guidance on probability risk to assist industry with which target probabilities to adopt? Uh, there is a large amount of guidance in 5104 already, I believe. Um, but beyond, is Ross there? Um, uh, no, he's not. He's, yeah, okay. No. Um, well, that is definitely something we can take back um, to the task force and discuss. Um, in this guide, this this report itself does provide uh, quite a lot of guidance. But um, if you're looking for sort of more of a design guide or an assessment guide, that's something that we would look into the future to to produce and provide. Right. Thanks, Andy. Okay, I think we've got time for maybe one more question. Um, so I'll, this is another general question. Um, is there a simple way to explain to an asset owner what an FOS means and what is an appropriate FOS or RF for a given failure mechanism? Does the probabilistic approach help to explain this? Uh, they're, they're very separate things. Um, a rating factor is, you know, uh, available uh, yeah, capacity or, or <laughs> demand. Um, this is, what we have here is, is a, a quantified measure of safety um, on, on a continuum. Um, as Mark kind of says, there, there is no, no such thing as zero risk. There's also no such thing as safe or unsafe. The, the idea that there's a binary choice between safe and unsafe is, is flawed. Uh, instead, there is simply a, a continuum of safety. 
some things are very safe, other things are a bit less safe, some things are maybe even a little risky. Um, so th there's a continuum of safety, and this approach provides uh, the measure of safety on that continuum. Uh, it's up to the asset owner to decide if that level of safety is acceptable or not. And I suppose to come back to the to the previous question, uh, the uh, the target reliability, the the risk appetite of the owner is is not something I'd be expecting the uh, practitioner to be arriving at, but instead would be stipulated, uh, I believe, uh, up front as to uh, the risk appetite of the owner, right? That they will say what level of safety they are comfortable with uh, as being acceptable. Uh, so this is, you know, quite different to factor safety and quite different to uh, rating factor. And I would say it's clearer. Uh, you're saying your bridge is this safe uh, and you now choose if this is safe enough. Great. Thanks, Colin. And look, thank you, everybody. Uh, thank you to Maya and to um, to Andy for being involved in the Q&A and to Mark as well. Um, I will close off. We've only got a couple of minutes um, until we uh, run out of time. And just before we do finish off today, I'll just let you know about the upcoming webinars. Um, we've got uh, a webinar coming up uh, in May on the education and training for drivers of assisted and automated vehicles. And then also in May, we have um, a number of webinars based on our newly updated guide to traffic management. So one that's looking at the guide and what changes have been made, and then a couple that is directly related to pedestrian planning uh, and one on pedestrian survey and audit methods. So if you haven't already, you can sign up for those uh, in on our website. So thank you everybody, thanks to Colin, Maya, Mark and Andy and thank you to everybody who sent through questions. If we weren't able to answer your question today, we will certainly get back to you in writing um, with a response. So thanks everybody. Um, when we close out today's session, a survey will pop up. It's really helpful for us to understand how you experience these sessions and we do read all of your feedback. So please do take a couple of minutes to give us some feedback. And thank you to everybody. Um, stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day.